It's been a, uh, an interesting last 20 months or so. And here as we come to the end of Advent and the end of yet another year, I think that many of us are beginning to look back at the, at the whole that these last couple of years have been. Um, in many ways, we have suffered. We've lost relationships. We've lost people that we love here, nearby, and far away. Um, we've experienced various trials and tribulations. And we have Jesus. And it's hard enough with him. And there are so many around us where they're their fallenness and their lostness, their blindness has been amplified. And so it can seem like the world is full of hopelessness. Perhaps even that God has forgotten. There was a man in the 20th century, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who had every reason to believe that God had forgotten that God had forgotten, maybe not the whole world, but certainly his native land of Russia. Born in 1908, he lived through the Russian Revolution. He was a political dissident, spent eight years in the gulags, brought attention to what was happening behind the Iron Curtain. And in 1983, he gave an address at the reception of his uh, a, a prize that he, that he won that was awarded him for progress in religion. And in that address, he remarks, more than half a century ago while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution, that swallowed up some 60 million of our people. I could not put it more accurately than to repeat. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. And over the course of his speech, he suggested that the West, though the West had been spared a communist invasion during the 20th century, Nevertheless, it was experiencing what he called a drying up of religious consciousness, secularization, such that the meaning of life was reduced to nothing more than the pursuit of happiness. That is to say, a happiness that might be achieved in spite of the West's rejection of good and evil. The West, Solzhenitsyn prophetically asserted, was slipping toward the abyss. Delivered that in 1983. 
And I would contend that the last 40 years since the address was given, these years have borne witness to his foresight as the moral fabric of Western society has continued to tear as families and institutions, communities, and Western nations have been broken, seemingly beyond repair. And the explanation for our present turmoil remains the same as it was for communist Russia. Men have forgotten God. Yes, men have forgotten God. Though they may acknowledge him on their lips and in their seasonal festivities or on their coinage and their paper currencies, even still, Western man has forgotten God because there is no fear of God in the West. Men have forgotten God looking to technology and technological advancement to save them. Men have forgotten God as they seek happiness in created things rather than the Creator. Men have forgotten God determining for themselves what is good and what is evil. Yes, men have forgotten God, but God has not forgotten men. He has not left us to ourselves. He has not forgotten us. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And he remembers his mercy. He remembers his mercy from generation to generation. The same God who sent his son into a rebellious world to demonstrate his love for the world by dying for sinners. He is the same God who stands ready to heal and to restore those who have forgotten him today. As the Blessed Virgin Mary exclaimed, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. And in this exclamation, inspired by the Holy Spirit at her cousin Elizabeth's house, in this exclamation lies the key to our experiencing God's mercy today. Mary said it is for those who fear Him She does not say it is earned by those who fear him, but rather that it is for those who fear him. See, the Lord pours forth his mercy on both the evil and the good. He's always giving grace and mercy to the world, but it is only those who fear him who can receive his mercy as the gift that it truly is. Only those who have not forgotten him, those who believe in their hearts that he is the rightful Lord over all, and who acknowledge that he is just to judge the world's sin, only such as these can receive the fullness of his mercy. For only such as these know that they need it. It is those who agree with God's judgment who can receive his mercy. Through Solzhenitsyn and many other prophetic voices over the last century, God has provided the world at large a witness to himself. While men are forgetting God, he has given us voices in the wilderness to call us back. And this was also true in the days of ancient Israel. 750 years before Jesus Christ. The nation of Israel had virtually forgotten their God. 
The same God who had brought them up out of Egypt, who had made a covenant with them in the Sinai wilderness. The nation itself had been split into two kingdoms in the previous centuries. And both these kingdoms, the north and the south, they were filled with idolatry. And iniquity had spread into every fabric of society like a cancer. From Samaria in the north to Jerusalem in the south, the hills and the high places were dotted with altars that had been constructed to offer sacrifices to unknown gods. Gods that should have been unknown to Israel. The gods of their neighbors. False and impotent gods. The covenant people of God were offering sacrifices to these idols. They had forgotten their God. They had forgotten who he was. They had forgotten his law. They had forgotten who he had called them to be. And to this people the Lord sent the prophet Micah, who declared in Micah 3.8, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And this is what Micah did. In addition to their idolatry, a sampling of the people's sins that that Micah declared include the following. They devised wickedness. They legalized theft of real estate and personal property. They were haughty. They hated good and they loved evil. They detested justice. They made crooked what was straight. They gave and they accepted bribes. They were full of lies. They perpetrated violence. They acquitted the wicked. And they dishonored their parents. And leading the way in this nation's wickedness were not only the royalty, the nobility, but also the priests and the prophets who assured the people that they were not displeasing the Lord and storing up disaster for themselves. So under this deceitful church leadership, the people persisted in their wickedness. And so the Lord sent the prophet Micah to them to confirm to them that he would, in fact, uphold his end of the covenants. He had agreed with them at Mount Sinai that if they turned away from the paths of justice, he would give them up to famine and to pestilence, to war. Zion would be plowed like a field. And Jerusalem would become a heap of ruins. He would cut Israel down and remove its national sovereignty, allowing it to be overtaken by foreign armies and governed by foreign empires. That's what being filled with the Spirit for Micah meant. He got to tell them this. And yet, the Lord would not forget his people. Nor would he forget his purposes for them. You will remember that he rescued his, his people from Egypt so that they could be a light to the whole world, a blessing to all the families of the earth, just as he had promised their forefather Abraham so many years before. So in, in spite of their wickedness, he would not utterly destroy them, but he would rescue and redeem them. 
He would not let them be overcome forever by the nations which sought their demise, those nations that he used to discipline his people for their covenant breaking. And though the nations assembled against Israel to snuff out the people of God, in their darkest hour, he would remember them. And he would provide for them. And though the line of kings had seemingly been cut off for centuries, the Lord would raise up a ruler to guide them in the ways of justice and to defend them against their enemies. This is the context. This is the setting for the famous Advent prophecy contained in our Old Testament lesson today. The foreign armies, they've gathered around Israel, laying siege, and the Lord speaks to this people, lacking a leader, lacking someone to defend them. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. From Bethlehem, the birthplace, the birthplace of King David, God would raise up a king to rule his unruly people. And from Bethlehem, which translates house of bread, God would bring deliverance to a people who was starving for salvation. And from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, which means fruitful, God would take the fruitless vine of Israel and make it to bear the fruit of righteousness and so become the vehicle of his blessing to all the families of the earth. All of this would happen out of Bethlehem. They had forgotten their God, but he had not forgotten them. Through the prophet Isaiah, who was a contemporary of Micah, the Lord said as much that he would not forget them. He said, can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. And he did not forget Israel. Though it was several centuries from between the time that the prophecy of Micah was given to the time of its fulfillment, he did fulfill his promise. And he did so in the most radical way. The Father sent his eternal Son to be the Savior of the world, to be born in the city of David's birth, to bear the fruits of good works, and to offer up his body as the bread of heaven, which gives life not only to Israel, but to the entire world. God did not forget Israel, and God has not forgotten us. Though we dwell in the midst of a people of unclean hearts, and though we fail to honor him rightly, and we bear his name unfaithfully, he has not forgotten us. And just as surely as he entered into the dark misery of his people on that first Christmas night, so he is eager to meet us in our time of need, to heal and to restore us in the light of his presence. A month ago or so, I turned 30, and it dawned on me that it was half a lifetime ago, this fall, that I was trying to find my way in high school. 
in our district, sophomores, 15-year-olds were the, were the that, that, that's when you entered high school. We had the junior high system. And the high school in my district was fed by two junior high schools, the rich kids and the ghetto kids, and I came from over here. And yet we found solidarity on the football team. And there was one night 15 years ago that I was with a buddy from the ghetto school. We were hanging out with all the rich kids, so we thought. Who could drive and had their licenses, had access to cars? We were hanging out in their neighborhood, and everyone decided all of a sudden to hop in their cars and go to the snow shack. And off they went. And my friend and I were left behind. And nobody knew. They had forgotten us. And in the months prior to that event, the Lord had been, he had been calling to me. He had put some people into my life that were inviting me to walk with him. To not merely acknowledge him as Savior, but to acknowledge him as Lord. And I had been resisting. I had been seeking to find my way on my own terms. To find my worth and my value by being like one of these in the eyes of the world. But on that night, when I felt like I had been forgotten by the world, it was in that very moment that the Lord spoke to me. I have not forgotten you. Come to me. Come to me. I will give you rest. Rest from seeking your value in the opinions of others. Rest from trying to determine your purpose for life. Rest from the unbelievable shame that accompanies high school. And he did. And he is eager to meet us in our time of need. Consider this, brothers and sisters. If while we were his enemies, he sent Christ to die for us, to sanctify us, to cleanse our hearts from the stain of sin, while we were his enemies, how much more now that we are his children, will he pour out his steadfast love and mercy upon us when we remember him? When we fear his name? As we boldly approach his throne, how much more will he draw near to us to give us grace in our time of need? God has not forgotten us. And this morning, here at this table, we will remember him. We will receive his mercy. And as we do so, we may join in praying with the psalmist, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. 
Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.